really is a joy to be with you here on the Lord's Day. Let me ask God to help us, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, how kind you are to give us your word and to give us stern warning. Lord, we do not take your warnings lightly. And so we ask that by your spirit, we would not only hear this word, but that we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that it would show in how we respond to it. Please be with this preacher, O God, who is nervous about remembering everything that you have taught him, and instead speak through him. Use him, Lord, to speak to us. And we ask also that as we hear your word, that we would be receptive to it by your spirit, not just hearers of it, but doers, lest we deceive ourselves. Only you can do this in us. Your word is powerful, and the application of it is powerful by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. By God's providence, I tend to be the guy among the pastors who preaches the last sermon of the year. It's just worked out that way. And, and this particular sermon is going to, it stands out to me as different from the other times that I've preached because in the past I've just, I've picked passages that were very upbeat, very encouraging to end the year, to, to look toward a more spiritually prosperous and faithful year next year, or one time preached on looking forward to the resurrection of the saints. But this year, the Lord has so led me to simply just look at the next passage in Isaiah, which is anything but upbeat. It's a, it is a passage that if, if this sermon is preached faithfully, if it preaches the passage faithfully, then some could look at this sermon and say that it is a sermon of fire and brimstone, which people don't often like. And many churches have overcorrected from that idea and hardly preach about God's wrath at all. And while the Bible doesn't only talk about God's wrath, and therefore the church's diet should not only be about God's wrath either, we should also recognize that there are passages like this one that lay heavily on us the judgment, the justice, and the wrath of God on sin and not blush about it. He is who he is, and he is glorious, and he is beautiful. And so you're going to be hearing today a lot about God's wrath, about disobedience, about the consequences of disobedience. And just recognize that this is out of God's love for you that you would hear this. We're also going to do something that's a little different today in that typically what we do here is the sermons that we preach are primarily for the believers in the room. That's what the scriptures are for primarily, okay? Uh, but we also will recognize that there are often and always unbelievers that are among us, and so we'll make sure to apply it to them. Today it's going to be the opposite, okay? The text demands that it be the opposite. The text demands that the primary audience of this sermon is going to be the folks who regularly attend this church and yet do not follow God in obedience. There are people who, who come here week after week because their parents make them, right? There are people who come here week after week because it's tradition. It's what my family has always done. But then the rest of the days of the week, they do not follow God. This sermon is primarily for you. Why is it primarily for you? Because this passage is primarily addressing the people in Israel who did not hear or listen to God. And so you may walk away from this, if, if you're in this group, you may, you may walk away from this feeling a little bit beat up today. That's not my desire. But, but if you do, just know this. These are, are warnings that are given to you in deep love for you. Primarily, a love from the compassionate God who delivered these words for you today. And secondarily, from a loving church who really wants to see you follow the Lord and be saved. But for the believers in the room, this is not a, a sermon to close your ears to because ultimately the word of God is for his people. And, and while this may not immediately apply to you, 
it reveals to us God's character. It reveals to us his hatred for sin and spiritual blindness and deafness. And it should pop us out of any sinful stupor that we might be in. So we're going to go through this text and we're going to give you some loving warnings on New Year's Eve. That's the title of this sermon. Loving warnings on New Year's Eve. And we're going to take a look at four warnings that are derived from this passage, namely through the negative example of the people being talked about in this passage. And here are the four warnings in your outline. Number one, head knowledge alone can't save you. Number two, sin imprisons you. Number three, the time to repent is now. And number four, don't ignore the judgment of God. So we're going to break this down into four warnings and please receive these warnings with, with somberness and yet receive it as one from coming from one who deeply loves you, okay? So let's take a look at this first warning for this New Year's Eve. Head knowledge alone can't save you. Head knowledge alone can't save you. And just so you know for your mental clock, we're going to be spending pretty much as much time on this one as we will on the other three combined, okay? So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this first point. Head knowledge alone can't save you. And by the way, I was careful to pick the word alone can't save you because you do need head knowledge in order to be saved. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You need to know what you believe, okay? But head knowledge alone can't save you. Let's take a look at verses 18 through 21. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The tone... The shift in tone in this passage from the previous ones is, is jarring. Remember, just, just by way of review, the beginning of Isaiah 42 is all about this glorious servant whom God upholds. And if we, just, if we scan verses 1 downward, here are some of the things that is said about this servant. It's his chosen one in whom his soul delights. God's spirit is put upon this servant. This servant would bring forth justice to the nations. He would do so in a manner of a humble servant rather than a conquering servant. He wouldn't grow faint or be discouraged, verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And God talks about how he's Yahweh. He's called this servant in righteousness and he would be given as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then he affirms with a strong statement that he's going to do it. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That was a couple Isaiah sermons ago. The most recent sermon, we talked about how we ought to respond with loud singing for the graciousness of God in giving the servant. It talks about how not only should Israel and Judah sing, but the coastlands should sing. The people in the desert should sing. The people in the mountains should sing because the servant would be for all of them. And, and we talked about how the Lord would, would, would come and save his people from Babylonian captivity with haste. And that points to how he's going to save us with haste. So all of this is very positive. Very positive. He ends verse 16. These are the things I do. And I do not forsake them. And then it turns a little darker in verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now, when we preached that passage, we, we said that that was primarily talking about the nations who were idolaters and how the Lord would, would conquer them and deliver his people, okay? And, and that is true, and yet this is also talking about 
the Israelites who had also fallen into idolatry. That's clear in the next passage. Because he says in verse 18, Hear you, deaf. This is, this is talking about a spiritual deafness. Not that they actually couldn't hear. He's not talking about physically deaf people. He's talking about a spiritual deaf people. And, and by the way, spiritual deafness is not, is not describing people who are morally neutral, who, who can't help it, right? They're, they're just deaf because that's how they were born. The Bible describes the deafness and the blindness and the hardness of heart as being something that you are responsible for. You have deafened your ears to God. And yes, the Bible does talk about blinding and judicial blinding, judicial hardening. It does talk about that. But God does that to people who have already closed their ears to God, who have hardened their hearts against him, who have refused to listen to him. He then disciplines them or rather punishes them with additional blindness and deafness. But ultimately, the people who are deaf are being told, here. They have a moral responsibility here. You have a moral responsibility to hear. And then he says in verse 18, look, you blind, that you may see. Same idea here, just some Hebrew parallelism to talk about the same thing. Okay? Look, you blind. And the, the result is that if you previously were blinding yourself to the truths of God, but now you look, now you'll be able to see. But then he says in verse 19, who was blind but my, look at that word, servant. Now that is jarring. That is jarring because we just heard verses 1 through 9, glorious things about the servant. And we concluded when we were in that passage, this servant has to be talking about who? Jesus Christ. He is the servant. But then we look at this passage and it says, who is blind but my servant? And we look at the rest of the passage, we see that the servant that's being talked about is Jacob, is, being, is Israel, right? So the nation of Israel is in verse 19, the servant that God is talking about. And by the way, if you talk to a learned Jew about Isaiah 53, they'll tell you that Isaiah 53, which we see as a very clear messianic chapter, is not talking about the Messiah, it's talking about Israel. And they'll point to, clearly point to this verse that says, my servant, and it applies it to Israel. So how does all of this work? We have to recognize that the idea of the servant in Isaiah is multifaceted, it's multi-layered. Many times, like here, it's talking about Israel. In chapter 44, King Cyrus of Persia is referred to as his servant. And then as we go further into Isaiah, it seems to be more and more revealed that his servant would be an individual person whom we recognize now is the Messiah. Ultimately, our authority on what is the proper interpretation of who is the servant is Jesus Christ. And he's the one who said in Matthew, after reading Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4, this is being fulfilled in your presence. Okay? So Jesus says it's talking about him. And by the way, it is okay for us to say that it's also talking about Israel. It's also talking about Israel. The servant that was described in verses 1 through 9 is who Israel should have been. They should have been the ones to declare God's glory to the nations. They should have been the ones to establish justice in the earth, to bring his law to the coastlands. They should have been the ones who would uh, be a light for the nations. In fact, God promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. The servant in verses 1 through 9 is the servant that Israel should have been. And the servant in verses 1 through 9 is the servant who Jesus is. So we see in verse 19 that Israel, God's servant, failed in their role as a servant. Who is blind but my servant? And by the way, that's worse it's worse for, it's, okay, it's bad that those who've never heard about Yahweh are blind. It's worse when those who have heard about him are blind. Does that make sense? It adds an egregiousness to the blindness because of what they have been allowed to see. Who was blind but my servant? 
And then again, in parallelism, or death as my messenger whom I send. They're not just blind, but they're also deaf. They fail to see what God has shown them, and they fail to hear what God has told them. And notice, by the way, in the second part of this, these parallel lines, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger, talking about the same people of Israel, and yet it adds a little bit of nuance to it. It's not good for a messenger to be deaf. Because if the messenger won't hear what the sender has to say, they're not going to send the right message. And that was what, that's what was going on. Israel was the messenger whom God had sent, and they were deaf to hear God's message. And then it goes on in verse 19. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? This, this phrase, dedicated one, if you're using other translations, you'll see that it may be different. It's a little tricky. Uh, who is blind as the one that I've made a covenant of peace with? Uh, the King James says, who is blind as uh, the one who is perfect. The idea here is it's who is blind as the one who has been perfected? Who is blind as the one who has been made whole? And in that sense, it would imply being made a covenant with them of peace and brought to God. The root word is shalom, which means a peace, a wholeness. And in this case, it's talking about one who has been made peace with, okay? Who is blind but that one? Again, that adds some egregiousness to their blindness. God made a covenant with them. He made peace with them. He reached out to them, and they were blind. It goes on, or blind as the servant of the Lord. Again, the same idea here, just closing it out. And then in verse 20, it says, He sees many things, but does not observe them. It's interesting. There's a difference between seeing something and observing something. This, this got me thinking about a, a personal uh, example, illustration of something that happened, and I'll try to go quickly through this, but uh, if you've ever been out to front site back when they were around, okay, well, what they'll do is they'll teach you certain steps. They'll ingrain this in you, have you repeat it over and over again for very specific purposes. And one thing that, I've been there for several times now, I've taken several two-day handgun courses, okay? It's part of being a, a pastor here. I'm just kidding, that's not true. <laughs> just, I'm just joking, okay? So, um, one of the things that they train you to do is that if you have a malfunction in your handgun, you're supposed to first move and look, and if you see that there's brass that's hanging out, what you're supposed to do is first check to see if you have another magazine, okay? If you do, then you lock your slide back, and you're supposed to strip that magazine out because it's probably a problem, okay? If you don't, you're supposed to keep it because that's all you got. You just got to work with what you got, right? So I was going through this process. I move and look. I I feel my magazine pouch. There's no magazine in there. What I do is I lock the slide back, strip the magazine out, throw it on the floor. Rack, rack, rack. Reach for my magazine pouch. It's empty. What does that mean? I got no more ammo, right? I'm out of this fight. In the real world, that would be very dangerous. So what I did in this illustration is I saw with my hand that I didn't have another magazine but I didn't observe it. Does that make sense? I didn't do with that information what I should have, which is not get rid of that other magazine. Israel similarly saw many things, but did not observe them. What did Israel see? Israel saw from what was passed down to them from previous generations, that God had taken them out of slavery in Egypt and miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and crushed the rest of Pharaoh and his army under that same sea that they just walked through. Before that, they actually saw through these stories that they've been told God's power in these uh, uh, plagues that he sent to Egypt. They saw that, that Israel was taken care of for 40 years in the wilderness because they rebelled. But for all those years, all those millions of people were properly fed, taken care of. Their shoes were taken care of as well. God cared for all of that. They saw that when they got to Canaan, that when they were to retake their promised land, God granted them victory at every step. And they defeated all of their enemies against all odds, if we can put it that way. 
So they saw all of it, and what should that have done? It should have caused them to follow him faithfully. It should have caused them to bow to him in fear. But the thing is, they saw, but they did not observe. Their ears were open, but he does not hear, verse 20 says. His ears are open, but he does not hear. They hear from what the priests say about the law. They hear what the prophets say. I'm sorry, the, the words make it into their ears, but they don't hear. They don't listen. Verse 21 tells us, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. So Yahweh was, was pleased to magnify the law and make it glorious. Why was he pleased? It was for his righteousness' sake. God's giving of his law to the people of Israel was because he is righteous. God's law, everything that God expects of us and forbids us to do, are not arbitrary. He didn't just pick them randomly. They are an outflow of his perfect and righteous character. And so it pleased God to glorify and magnify his law and make it glorious because of his righteousness' sake. How did he do that? By giving his law to the people of Israel. He, he, he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave it to them and then gave the rest of it, the specifics to Moses after that. And that is how God, in one way, magnified his law and made it glorious. Now, you might think, that God giving his law to the people was not a very nice thing to do. But, but that's just not true. Okay? God gave them the law out of love for them. Because if they would follow the law, then they would be right with him and they would flourish. They would be prosperous. They would find great success if they followed God's law. So the problem was not the law. The problem was not God's giving them the law. The problem was that they would not hear it. The problem is they would see it, but that they would not observe it. Is that you? Is that you? Head knowledge alone couldn't save them. Head knowledge alone can't save you. You come here week after week. You listen to these sermons. Faithful parents and faithful Sunday school teachers teach kids in our church over and over again about God's law and God's gospel, and that head knowledge alone cannot save you. You may know that you're not to worship any other God. You may know that you're not to create idols and bow down to them or use his name in vain. You may know that the Lord's day is important and you should be here. You may know that you should honor your father and mother, that you uh, shouldn't kill anybody, that you shouldn't steal from anyone, that you shouldn't lie, and that you shouldn't covet. Uh, but it doesn't matter if you don't actually obey it. You may memorize the Ten Commandments, but if you don't hear it, if you don't listen to God, it does not matter. And here's the warning for you. Head knowledge alone can't save you. It doesn't matter that you've been coming to this church for years. If you do not follow God, it does not matter. The law is there, and what it does is it exposes how sinful you really are. And the message of the law is, obey this and live, but if you disobey, you're going to pay the penalty forever. So who here among us has loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, as represented in the first four commandments? Who here has loved their neighbors as themselves? The answer here is nobody. So knowing the law cannot save you. But this is a Christian church, thank God. And so there's, there's good news to this, okay? You were in a situation where you were headed towards hell, but God gave his only son to die for sinners. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, then you will be forgiven all of those violations of every sin you've ever committed and any sin in the future, and you will have eternal life forever and ever, if you believe it. And that's the if. There are some kids in here who can come up here and perfectly recite the gospel. That's not enough. Just as the law benefits you not if you don't obey it, the gospel benefits you not if you don't believe it. So we are calling you to actually not just 
looked at the words of the gospel and say, that sounds all right. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your whole weight in the only one who can save you because head knowledge cannot do it. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, head knowledge alone cannot save you. Just as head knowledge alone could not justify you, head knowledge alone cannot sanctify you either. There are some Christians out there who, man, they have seminary level knowledge and yet they're babes in Christ. They have very little love for God, very little love for people, but they've memorized all the right facts. Head knowledge alone cannot sanctify you. You need to know those things, but just like, but I will say, unlike Israel, you need to respond to them rightly. You need to take the glorious doctrines of sola scriptura, sola Christus in all of these and respond in gratitude and obedience and faith. So don't rely on your head knowledge to sanctify you, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first warning on this New Year's Eve. And again, we're going to move through the other ones much more quickly. The second one is this. Sin imprisons you. Sin imprisons you. Look at verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Remember, the immediate historical context of this is that after centuries of disobedience and hardness against God, he allowed, first of all, a complete destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? So that Assyria came in and routed them and then spread all of the people to the other nations and Israel as a northern kingdom ceased to be. For the southern kingdom, God's punishment for them was, was different because, uh, because of his sovereign grace on them and continuing the promise through them, but also in part of that because they did have sometimes good kings that would come and tear down idols, okay? And so the punishment for them was rather than being completely destroyed was that they would be exiled in Babylon, a conquering empire, for 70 years. So they were literally plundered. They were looted. There was a, a, a full-scale siege on Jerusalem, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But as a result of that siege, they, they finally broke through the walls and destroyed everything, took the plunder, and took the best people back to Babylon, okay? So this is a people that was plundered and looted. And it goes on in verse 22 to say, they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the Judahites were literally put in holes or hidden in prisons. That wasn't always the case. And yet the reality for all of them is that they were all prisoners of Babylon. They weren't just free to come and go, right? They were captives. And they were required to stay in Babylon and, and serve Babylon and its emperor. So they were imprisoned, very really so. Not only that, in verse, verse 22, it also says, they have become plunder. They've become plunder. Because it wasn't just that they were plundered and then left behind. They themselves, many of them, most of them, were taken from their homeland. They were treated as property. They were treated as plunder. They became plunder. And verse 22 says that they've become plunder with none to rescue. There wasn't some backup regiment of Judahite military that was going to go and rescue these prisoners of war. There was no one that was coming for them. That is, during this appointed time that God had wanted to discipline his people. So they become plunder with none to rescue spoil with none to say restore again we're seeing more parallelisms right they become plunder with none to rescue spoil with none to say restore and maybe the 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 word spoil carries this connotation of helplessness where plunder carries the connotation of violence but there's no one to say restore there is no one to stand up and advocate for the judahites and say give them back they were alone they were completely alone and imprisoned. 
And this was a result of their sin. Understand, this was a result of their sin, okay? This wasn't just some random act that happened to Israel and Judah. It was God's judgment on them because of their sin. And that's what sin does. In this case, sin led to them to be literally imprisoned. But Christian, or actually anyone in this room, before Christ, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are a prisoner today. Not a prisoner of the Babylonian Empire. You're a prisoner of sin itself. Jesus talks about how if you, the truth will set you free. Okay? Romans talks about how for if you've believed in Christ, that you've, you've gone from slavery to sin, you've been freed, and you've become a slave of God. Okay? So slavery in a very real way, I'm sorry, sin in a very real way has imprisoned you. You are a slave to it. You may feel like, oh, I could do whatever I want. You are serving your, your master, sin. You are serving your father, the devil. That's how, this is how the Bible talks about it, right? Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his work. That was the case of people who don't believe in him. Okay? It talks about how the law curses you because you have sinned against the holy God, and the end result of that is that you will continue to remain imprisoned in sin unless you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. That is your spiritual state right now. And if you remain in it, if you do not heed these loving warnings that when you go meet your maker or Christ returns, you're going to be judged for those sins. And no one in Christ here wants that for you. Christ's ministry was to free those in prison. And he has handed us his ministry to free those in prison by sharing the gospel with them. That's why we're doing this for you today. This is why it is a gift from God to you today because you are imprisoned under sin. And the way that you get out of that state is by trusting in the one whom God has sent to free people from that prison. If you believe in him, Place your trust in this person who is breaking down these chains. Brothers and sisters in Christ, while you will never be a slave to sin again, you'll always be a slave of God. There are times where you can act like you're a slave to sin. Look at Hebrews 3. You can keep your finger in Isaiah 42, but Hebrews 3 is instructive here. Goes Philemon, Hebrews, James. This is what we're encouraged to do in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. Again, notice the word brothers. This is talking about Christians. Is it possible for a Christian to have an evil, unbelieving heart for a time? Apparently, yes. Is it possible for a Christian to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Yes. And that's why we're called to exhort each other every day as long as it is today so that that doesn't happen. Because sin imprisons you. It can imprison you. And you as a Christian, you know that this, the results of your sin are never satisfactory, right? It's always terrible when we sin. And so hear this warning, just as the unbelievers are receiving this warning, sin imprisons you. Don't, don't turn to it. Repent of your sins and trust in the one who frees you. So head knowledge alone can't save you. Sin imprisons you. Here's our third warning. The time to repent is now. The time to repent is now. Look at verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? So God, through Isaiah, is asking the audience of this passage, who's going to give ear? Who's going to listen to this? 
Who's going to listen to what God has just said about his servant being deaf and his messenger being blind? Who's going to, who's going to stop seeing but not observing? Who's going to actually hear what God has said? Who's going to see that God had allowed this terrible thing to happen to them to bring them back? Who among you will give ear to this? Who's going to attend, pay attention, heed this, and listen for the time to come? The idea here of for the time to come is likely just talking about going forward. So up till now, audience of this letter, those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, you have been deafened, You've remained in your deafness and your blindness and your hardness, but who is going to change that today? This is an urgent call in this passage. Who among you is going to do this? It's an urgent call from God, and it's an urgent call from this pulpit. Who's going to do it? Who's going to turn away from their hardness and their blindness and their deafness, and who's going to run to Jesus Christ for salvation and life? Please, Let it be you. Let it be you. Over and over again, parents will share Jesus with their children, okay? And and, and the world will look at that and they'll call it child abuse. They'll call it uh, brainwashing, okay? But parents do this. If your child here and your parent is sharing the gospel with you faithfully, okay? They do it because they love you. I'm doing it because I love you. People who are outside of Christianity might look at what we're doing here and they might think that we're doing this for money because the more people who are in these seats, the more money comes in. Some people might think that we're doing it for baptism so that we can report to the Southern Baptist Convention how many professions and baptisms that we've had. Look, that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because we, are, we love you and we are terrified for your soul. I remember sharing the gospel with somebody and basically he said, um, I got plenty of time to do that. So he is okay with the gospel, but he's got enough time in his life to turn to Jesus Christ. Look, you don't know that. You don't know that you have that time. Just a few days ago, a brother in the Lord was driving and he saw police, police lights and sirens behind him. He did the right thing and he pulled over. The carjacker that the police were chasing got out of the car that he was in, took the life of this brother, and took his car. Now, praise God, Jerry is a brother in Christ, and he is with the Lord rejoicing. His family needs our prayers, and they need support and help. The point is, Jerry was not on that day planning to see his Savior. Okay, What if that was you? Do you think that could happen to you? Yesterday, a pedestrian got hit by a pickup truck and died. Who knows what they were doing? Maybe they were running to the gas station for a bag of chips. That could be you. You don't know how much time you have, and that is why this message is so urgent. You need to repent today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, and, and, and the Savior could return at any time. And when he returns... That's it. It's going to be judgment. But perhaps God is patiently waiting for people like even you to come to him first. The time is now to repent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't play with God's grace. If you are stuck in some sin, the message is the same for you. The time to repent of that sin is right now. Confess to God your sin. Go to him for mercy, and brothers and sisters, he is abounding in steadfast love. He will receive you immediately. The time to repent is right now. And a fourth warning, don't ignore the judgment of God. Don't ignore the judgment of God. Look at verses 24 and 25. Who gave up Jacob to the looter? And Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger, 
and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So who was it? Verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter? Jacob here, you see again more parallel lines. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Israel and Jacob are the same people. In fact, Israel, the nation, was named after the man Israel who was previously named Jacob before God changed his name to Israel. So who was it that gave Jacob, who gave Israel up to the looter and the plunderers? Answer, verse 24, was it not Yahweh? Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned? It was God who did it. It was God who allowed Israel purposely to be destroyed. And it was God who purposely allowed them to be taken by Babylon, right? It was God who did it. Against whom we have sinned. Notice that verse 24. Against whom we have sinned. It's interesting here that uh, Isaiah loops himself in in this particular part of the verse, but then he switches to they in the next two phrases. But Isaiah is not so foolish as to think that he had never sinned against God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This sermon is coming to you from a fellow sinner. Understand that. Saved by grace, but a sinner nonetheless. Isaiah says, against whom we have sinned. And then he puts it on them, in whose ways they would not walk. The people of Israel refused to walk in God's ways. God's ways are simply the paths of righteousness that he has laid out for people according to his perfect character. And the servant, the messenger, Jacob, Israel, they would not walk in his ways. They refused to. That's why they're facing the circumstances that they were facing now. And whose law they would not obey. Same idea here. To walk in righteousness is to walk according to the law of God. But they would not obey God's law. So here's what he did. Verse 25. So he poured on him, God poured on Israel, the heat of his anger. Some scary words in this verse. Think about poured, the idea of pouring. Imagine just a massive bowl of God's wrath being poured on somebody. Terrifying imagery. But it's not just the pouring. What is being poured out, verse 25, the heat of his anger. It's his anger. It's not his disappointment, right? It's his anger. And and imagine whatever is coming out of that bowl is white hot. He poured on Jacob the heat of his anger, more terrifying words, and the might of his battle. He poured on Israel the might of his battle. In other words, he went to war against them. That's scary. In, In Joshua, we see God going to war on behalf of his people. He would go in and he would conquer on their behalf. Yes, they would do the fighting, but ultimately the Lord was fighting for them and therefore they won. But here, God is turning his weapons against them. And that, that should give you some fear if that's you. It's a terrifying thing for God to be making war against you. But if you have sinned against him and you've not turned to Jesus Christ, that is the state that you're in. The heat of his anger is being poured out on you. The might of battle is being poured out on you. Verse 25, it goes on, It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. So Israel and Judah, they're aware of their circumstances. They recognize that this is terrible and and that the fire is all around them, but they didn't understand that it was from God. And look, this this was a terrible time they were going through. We often don't see this because of stuff like veggie tales that makes it all cutesy, okay? But, but they were, Jerusalem, the city, was under siege by the Babylonian army for 18 months, okay? When we were in quarantine, we could go to the store basically anytime we wanted and we could have Cheez-Its if we were craving it, okay? If you were under siege by the Babylonian army, you're cut off. You got no fresh food coming in. 
You have no fresh water coming in, and this is going on for 18 months. People are starving. People are dying because of disease. They are, in fact, so hungry that they are resorting to cannibalism. 18 months of this, and then eventually the Babylonian army breaks through and steals their stuff and steals their best people, leaving Jerusalem with basically nothing. And then the state that they were in, yes, they did take care of those people. Yes, that's true. But the state that they were in was such that if you do not assimilate to their religion, you could get thrown into a lion's den. If you wouldn't bow down to golden images, you could get thrown into a fiery furnace. So they recognized that their circumstances were terrible, but they did not acknowledge that those circumstances came from God himself. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're seeing the consequences of your sin, the suffering that you're going through, and you are not at all factoring God into this situation. The reality is, that is exactly what we deserve. We deserve actually much more than that. There's even more language of burning. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Listen, whatever suffering that you're going to here on earth, while deserved, is nothing compared to the suffering of eternal condemnation if you do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the way that the Bible describes God's eternal wrath on sin. God is, it's described as, in Revelation 20, a lake of fire. Is it literally a lake of fire? Probably not, but that shouldn't soothe your conscience. It is something that is trying to describe something that we can't even grasp. Lake of fire should strike some fear in your heart. Other places describe it as outer darkness, a place where it's completely devoid of any joy of God and any of God's light. It's also described in Mark as a place of weeping and of gnashing of teeth. It's described as an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. It is an eternity of experiencing God's wrath on your sin. And you might think, well, God is not very loving to allow that kind of thing to happen to somebody. But listen, while God is perfectly loving, he's also perfectly just. And countless sins against an infinite and an infinitely good God deserves outer darkness, deserves unquenchable fire, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It deserves that forever and ever. Don't ignore the judgment of God. It is a very real and a very serious thing. But God has provided a way of salvation. Place your trust in Jesus Christ and be delivered from that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, while you will never face the judgment or wrath of God because that was put on Christ, you will experience suffering in this world as a discipline from God because of your sin. Don't ignore that either. Don't ignore that either. God intends for that suffering to turn you back to him in repentance. So don't ignore the judgment of God. Let's review. Head knowledge alone can't save you. Sin imprisons you. The time to repent is now. And don't ignore the judgment of God. Let me wrap up by first applying this to the, what we call the secondary audience of this particular sermon, and that's the believers in the room. The first thing is, brothers and sisters, we need to remind each other of these things. We need to remind each other that head knowledge alone cannot sanctify us. We need to remind each other of the dangers of sin, how destructive they could be to your soul. We need to remind each other that the time to repent is not tomorrow, not the next day, it's right now. And we need to remind each other in love that God is a jealous God and he's wrathful against your sin and he's going to cause suffering in your life if that's what it takes to get it out of you. Okay? So we need to remind each other of these things. And if that's you, brother or sister, who is caught in some sort of besetting sin today, it's not too late to repent. In fact, it's right now is a time to repent, okay? Now, to you who have not up to this point followed God, please, I beg you, on this New Year's Eve, 
heed these warnings. They are a gift from God to you today. It may not feel like it, but they are a gift from God to you today. Remember that head knowledge alone can't save you. Understanding this sermon just by your intellectual ability cannot save you. You need to place your trust in Jesus Christ because you are imprisoned under sin today. But Jesus sets the prisoner free. And the time to get out of that prison by his rescue is right now. Don't ignore the judgment of God. Turn to God and receive his grace in Jesus Christ. Don't just see, but observe. Don't just let these words go in and out, but hear. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the sternness of this passage. And Lord, I beg you that by your spirit, it stirred up somebody here. And I pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And for the brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be motivated by this, to simply love you more because of the great grace that you have shown us, in spite of the fact that we were just like this. And, 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 and let us consider that you discipline us, you chasten us, and turn to you instead by your mercy to faithfulness. Lord, we're thankful that you hate sin. We're thankful that your righteousness is expressed in your law. And we ask that you would help us to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.